Sometimes it feels like all topics lead to technology these days. And it's not just in dialogue with our friends, our families, our coworkers. It's also what we ask when we're alone. Our Google searches of buzzwords like blockchain and 5G are up over 1,000% in the past couple years. Searches for fintech are up 843%. And Google searches for AI have risen 38%, even though AI is a decades-old subject. But what tech topics aren't we talking about? We asked around to find out. How bad actors are using technology to disrupt our political and financial systems and what we can do to defend ourselves both personally and as society against those actions. I don't want to carry around credit cards anymore because I want to use Apple Pay for everything. Corporate governance within ride-sharing companies. Within the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to be living in a society where people will be walking around with glasses that will give you directions of where to go, tell you names of buildings. Keep an eye out for augmented reality. It's going to take over. So what else aren't we covering? On this episode of The Bid, we'll speak to Kevin Roos, technology columnist for The New York Times and best-selling author. We'll discuss how technology is influencing our politics and culture and his own journey as he tried to stop using his phone. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Thanks, Kevin, for being here. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Such a pleasure to have you. You write a technology column for the New York Times called The Shift. Before that, you covered Wall Street. You've written a couple books. And you're really familiar with the world of business, politics, and also the underbelly of the Internet. What got you into this cross-section, and what about technology got you to start writing The Shift? Well, I have always been obsessed with technology. I was a child hacker prodigy, not prodigy, but I like to sort of go on weird parts of the internet. I had lots of GeoCities web pages. <laughs> I had a little web design business with my brother. From a pretty early age, I was into not only like the internet, but the things that the internet made possible. And then I graduated from school. I got into financial journalism because I was writing a book about Wall Street. And then after that, I saw sort of the world moving to tech. A lot of my sources People I talked to in finance and in consulting, they were moving out to San Francisco to work at startups. They were transitioning into engineering. They were going back to school to learn how to code. It just felt like there was this kind of tectonic shift happening that was pushing people that I knew and respected into tech. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe I should go spend some time trying to figure that out. And then it just happened that the woman I was dating at the time and now married to lived out in California for school. So I thought, well, maybe I could combine these things <laughs> and go to California to write about technology. And that's what happened. And here we are. But you came back to New York. Well, this partner of mine, this spouse, my wife, she is in law school here in New York. I just keep following her around, basically, <laughs> and adjusting my career accordingly. But no, I like writing about technology from New York because I think I lived in Silicon Valley for several years. I sort of have an understanding of the reality on the ground there, but I think it gives me a kind of useful remove to have some distance. Often I felt in San Francisco, it's hard to be objective about the tech industry when you're 
your friends work at these companies. You're constantly running into people that you know. And you get a very sort of cloistered worldview at certain times out there. And so much of what you write about is what people aren't talking about, and then they start talking about it because you have a great ability to spot these sorts of trends and things that we should be talking about. But what do you think people aren't talking about right now? feels like tech dominates all headlines. All companies are technology companies. So, like, what is there to cover that isn't being covered? I mean, I do think technology is the story right now. It really feels like we're kind of transitioning from one economy to another. And we're part of the way through that, which is why you see every company being a tech company. But I guess they call it the fourth industrial revolution, which is not a phrase that I love, but I think it's useful in terms of its, it positions this as the correct size of transition, I think. And so I don't think we're talking enough about AI and labor and the future of work. We talk a lot about it, but I think if we had a better understanding of what was happening, it would be kind of all we were talking about. Do you feel like there are other things that we should be talking about? No, I think that's a lot of it. AI and the future of work, we think about that all the time in financial services. And there's a lot of jobs that will be affected. And it's funny because it's hard to figure out where you start on the conversation about AI and ethics and work. Do you just bemoan the potential loss of jobs in the future? I sort of had the same question. Like, I didn't really know where to start with it. So I, a couple months ago, started going back and, like, reading about the first and second and third industrial revolution. What was Mm -hmm. it actually like to be a farmer in, you know, the 19th century who suddenly saw these factories springing up and thought, oh, man, like, I got to go to the city now and leave my farm and go get a job in a factory. What was it like to work in an auto plant in the mid-20th century and see the robots coming in around you and think, oh, I should probably, like, find something else to do? And what was the actual cumulative impact of those changes on the societies in which they took place? I'm a little bit of a history nerd, so I love going back and reading contemporaneous, you know, what were the people of 1830s England saying about the factories? And have you found a good analysis of that that gives you hope about the future? So, for example, I sometimes wonder, well, has anyone done, like, an economic analysis of the impact of the washing machine? (laughs) That was positive for most people. Have you found, like, good work that gives you hope about what this could mean in the Fourth Industrial Revolution? I mean, I think that the sort of default story is one of hope, right? Because we all used to have terrible jobs, you know? Like, (laughs) farming (laughs) is not a fun job, and it's backbreaking, and it's unsafe, And it's good that only 2% of us need to be farmers now to feed the other 98%. It's good that our productivity has resulted in better jobs. But there's some pain involved in the transition. It's not like we just snap our fingers and all the farmers become factory workers and all the auto engineers learn to do other skilled labor. It takes a while for society to catch up with the technology. And that's happening faster this time. It took a long time for technology to proliferate in these earlier shifts, and now it's happening every day. And where do you think the dialogue among technology leaders, founders, people you interview about this is like right now? Well, there's kind of like a public dialogue and a private dialogue. Mm. I've heard both, right, because I'm a journalist, so when people talk to me, they usually have their, like, public face on. (laughs) In that case, the public discussion is, we'll get through this, essentially. We've made every transition Before in our history work, automation is going to create new categories of jobs. We don't even know what they are yet, and people will find new opportunities. There's not like a fixed pie. The private conversation is often a little bit bleaker than that, I find, because these companies feel enormous pressure 
to automate. They feel if they don't do it in the next quarter, their competitor's going to do it. Their margins are going to get fatter. You know, their shareholders are going to reward them for that. And the people who don't automate are going to get left behind. So I think there's an incredible amount of pressure felt by corporate leadership to do this as quickly as possible. And frankly, maybe too quickly. Maybe it should take a little longer for this to be sort of implemented in the company, knowing that, you know, people are going to be affected by this. Mm-hmm. Do you see anyone sort of trying to do anything about that? Like, I think about the minimum basic income advocacy and some attention to solutions. Is that about headlines and PR? Are you seeing anything sort of tangible? No, I don't think that's about headlines and PR. I think people understand that every transition has some elements of good things and some elements of pain. And if we can ease the pain for people, that's good. We should Mm -hmm. do that. And I'm actually optimistic. I think that part of what we see in periods of technological transformation is that actually human skills become more important. A lot of people, for a lot of years, their jobs were basically robotic. They were taking things from one place and putting them Mm -hmm. in another place, or they were changing cells on a spreadsheet. And it's good. If we don't have to do that anymore, we get to do more creative things. We just need a system that supports that transition and the people who sort of can't make the jump or can't make the jump as easily. Part of what we're doing at BlackRock through Aladdin Wealth is basically like building technology, software, algorithms that helps our clients, banks and wealth management firms, transition to using technology to make a financial advisor's life more about their connection with their client. And what's funny is that a lot of those startups a couple of years ago were like, nope, we don't need people. We don't need human advisors. It's going to be all the algorithm. They're now adding human advisors. So there's sort of like this equilibrium of human plus technology that we're kind of reaching, at least in wealth management. What kind of trends have you followed in financial services or fintech, given that you started your career in Wall Street, and how have things played out maybe any differently than you would have expected? I'm sort of fascinated by the venture market right now. I mean, I know it's not exactly financial services, but the VC economy is really interesting to me. I know Uber filed to go public, and that's a fascinating example of a company that got enormously large, raised more money than probably any private company in the history of private companies. And it's just a different model. We've never seen a company go public this large with this much venture money in it. And I'm fascinated by sort of the growth and the explosion of the venture capital-backed ecosystem and all the services that we all depend on every day that may not have gotten off the ground were it not for these sources of private capital. And do you think that in the wake of these IPOs that people are raising just as much money? It seems like nothing's really changed, but it's not daunting the hopes of today's entrepreneurs or the expectations of today's venture capitalists who are doing those early stage deals. No, I think there's a natural skepticism of loss-making companies, but I think people generally understand that you lose a lot of money for a little while, and then hopefully you get market share, and then you can have pricing power. The bad example of this is MoviePass, which I wrote about (laughs) last year, which had explosive growth because they were basically like losing money on every transaction. They had negative margins on every new customer. So that's not the best model, but there are models, I think, that work. I mean, we saw Amazon be unprofitable for many, many years, and I think they're doing okay now. But that premise of get so big so that you have pricing power, there's something about that that's a little complicated in terms of its relationship to the consumer, right? And it's kind of amazing to see all these brands be so beloved by all of us because they're convenient. But ultimately, their business model is to have pricing power that's a little anti-competitive. Do you think we're we're catching on to that? Do people talk about that when you are covering them or no? It's great for consumers. We get all this cheap stuff. Right? We get movies for free and, you know, we get rides to the airport for probably 20 or 30% less than their natural price would be in a sort of unsubsidized market. So for consumers, it's great. I think if you're the investor, 
how long are you willing to subsidize growth? I think those are questions above my pay grade. But <laughs> for consumers, like I think that we're living in a golden age of cheap stuff. And I used to joke, I had a friend who was a venture capitalist out in San Francisco, and every time I would use one of these services that he funded, I would say, like, thank you for the $3. <laughs> uh, really appreciated the discount on that ride. And uh, he didn't think it was that funny. But <laughs> <laughs> He should have thanked you for being a user. So what other kinds of things are you writing about these days? Right now, I'm really interested in social media and the reckoning around privacy and data use and extreme content been doing a lot of reporting on Facebook and YouTube. And I think we're sort of at a moment now where we're collectively reckoning with the fact that a lot of our lives are connected to these platforms that may or may not have our best interests at heart. And what do you think will change as a result of like the increased public attention, either on our behavior or policy? I think there'll be some regulation. I mean, I think everyone at this point expects regulation of at least privacy and maybe some content stuff too. I think people are starting to view these services differently. I'm not sure what the average user of one of these services feels, but I know at least among the people that I know, they're having different conversations about it than they would have a couple of years ago. I don't know. What do you think? I think the piece about the fact that devices in your home may have a human listening, right, might be attached to a human who's like transcribing your words. When that becomes real, that's pretty powerful. Whether it changes your behavior, I don't know. I haven't changed any of my behavior. I check Facebook a little bit less. But you're still on it, right? I'm still on it. And so am I. I still love the device in my home. Yeah. And I'm curious what lessons from the financial crisis and regulation in the wake of that there are for social media platforms and whatever may transpire here. The content is so different. The nature of the issues are so different that there may not be any whatsoever. But it will be kind of interesting to see how that gets shaped and written and then how it gets digested by these companies, particularly because it's not really an area where those writing the rules may have a lot of depth of expertise or even use it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've sat in enough hearings to know that Congress is not, you know, logging into uh, Instagram all that often for the most part. <laughs> um, I think there are some useful lessons from the financial crisis. I mean, one thing that we saw with a lot of the post-crisis regulation is that it really did entrench the big financial institutions. It became prohibitively expensive and hard to start to form a new bank. I mean, there are basically zero new banks since the financial crisis. And the big banks are probably safer and less levered and have better capital controls than they did before the crisis. So in that sense, I think the financial system is better for more people. But if the goal was to, like, break up the banks, certainly didn't do that. So bridging your two worlds that you've covered the most, financial services and technology, and now that we're in this fourth industrial revolution, in what ways do you see financial services ripe for disruption and change? Well, I think some of this is happening around the margins. We're seeing things like the lending models are changing for personal finance. We're seeing robo-advisors. There's a lot of startup activity that's being used as kind of a pilot vehicle for the rest of the industry. Like, oh, we can do that. We can do robo-advisors. Let's do that or let's acquire one ourselves. My sense is that the finance industry is actually ahead of a lot of industries in terms of technological adoption. I mean, high-frequency trading has been a thing for decades, and there's been lots of automation happening throughout these firms. I still think there's room for improvement on a lot of these. I think a lot of things like underwriting, there's still a lot of opportunity for automation there. I think you have to be careful with things like underwriting because if you have biased data, you're going to have biased results for things like home mortgages. But trying to get through one interview without mentioning the blockchain <laughs> world, it's, it's very hard these days. But I do think there are probably some useful applications there. 
As you're covering these tech companies that are going through everything they're going through in Washington and with consumers now, any lessons for financial services? I think one thing that has really stood out to me and that has surprised me, actually, is how responsive these tech companies have been to their own workers. Hmm. We've seen in the past year engineers at Google and Amazon and Microsoft and other large tech companies push for real change within those companies and be listened to. I mean, I think that because the talent pool is so tight there, because these are such valuable employees, that I think they've found out that they have a lot more leverage than they thought. And if their firms aren't doing things that they feel proud of, they can band together and change that. And it doesn't take very many of them. And, you know, it doesn't take very long. So I think that in financial services and in every industry, I think some social responsibility can be led from the top. And the hope is always that the top is leading. And in the cases where it's not, the workers can actually have a pretty substantive impact in the right situations. That makes a lot of sense, especially since millennials are now the majority of a lot of these firms for the are average we? age. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The average age of BlackRock is 34, which is millennial, actually. Wow. Right? Well, also millennials, not so young anymore. Right. So, anyway. <laughs> right. So a lot of what you spend time on is sort of gloomy and sort of negative. But you also— <laughs> What are you talking about? Um, well, I mean, you know, I guess the dark undervalue of the internet. But you also give out Good Tech Awards. So who got Good Tech Awards this year? Yeah, this is my favorite column of the year. Because you're right, I do spend like 51 weeks a year in the muck of the internet. But then at the end of the year, I like to actually look at some of the people and companies who are doing great things for the world. So this year, let's see, I had a company called Zipline that does blood delivery by drone. So they have remote places in you know, Sub-Saharan Africa or other places that need medical supplies for hospitals and remote clinics. And they've actually now have drones that they can just plop the bag of blood onto and shoot it out and get it to the place where maybe you couldn't get an ambulance. Wow. So that's really cool. There was also a great project run by Code for America, which is a nonprofit that does civic coding projects. In San Francisco, they had a law passed where you could expunge your criminal record if you had a marijuana-related conviction. But it involved a lot of paperwork. It was kind of cumbersome. And so a lot of people just didn't know how to do it, who were eligible for it. So Code for America teamed up with some organizations and built like an automated system where you could just Hmm. automatically expunge these convictions, which was a great example of automation in practice creating more justice and equity for people. So things like that, I like to save up through the year. I have a little folder in my inbox. It's like good stuff. And every time I feel a little bit down in the dumps, I just look at that and remind myself that not everything is horrible. Right, exactly. So I'm going to have a rapid fire round of a couple questions for you. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, so you were on Time's list of 140 best Twitter feeds. Oh, my God. (laughs) What's your social media of choice? Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, other? Other. I'm really into TikTok right now, which is a Chinese lip syncing app. It's delightful. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so good. I wrote a whole column about it. You can go check it out. But it's um, very happy. It's just people being silly on the internet like it used to be. And it's delightful. If you haven't checked it out, you will feel very old if you are over 25 and you open TikTok. <laughs> like I felt like I was chaperoning a school dance or something, but it's delightful. So you had a 30-day breakup with your phone? What's the consensus? Phone, but less phone. I mean, I did this detox because I was on my phone for five and a half hours a day on average. And it was getting in the way of my marriage and my 
work and my life, and I just thought, this sucks, and I don't <laughs> want to do this anymore. So I got a phone coach who helped me. That exists. Get, she's amazing. <laughs> she's my phone coach, and she helped me get down from five and a half hours a day to now I'm at one and a half hours a day. No phone is not the answer. No one can have no phone in the year 2019, unless you're like Amish, <laughs> um, which, you know, no shade on the Amish. They've got to figure it out. But I do think we can be more intentional about how we use our phones and not just use it to like kill time. So in that period, you picked up pottery? I did. Are you sticking with it? I hope so. Yeah, it's really fun. It's fun to do something with your hands that it doesn't involve a screen. Gets your hands real dirty. You can't really check your phone while you're doing pottery, and it's very meditative. I made some very crappy bowls. If anyone's in the market for some mediocre bowls, <laughs> I've got a, <laughs> a cupboard full of them. Um, who's been your most memorable interview? I did an interview. I did a, a show at an anime convention once. You meet a lot of characters at an anime convention. So <laughs> let's see. I interviewed a Vocaloid who is a hologram pop singer. So it mm. doesn't actually exist, but I did a, a story about these imaginary pop singers that have thousands and thousands of fans that come to their concerts, quote-unquote. So that was pretty weird. So all more memorable than Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg is fine, but, you know, he's, <laughs> he's, not, he's no hologram. And what book do you want to write next? Oh, man. Well, I am writing a book now, but I can't talk about it yet. But if but you um, – <laughs> yeah, it's loosely on this issue of sort of AI and the future. So 2020 – Get your Amazon carts ready. Okay, so stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Thank you for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. This material is not an offer to sell or an invitation to apply for any particular product or service. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.